Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. And today we're going to be talking about something that's very close to my heart and something that I really had to learn to bring into my own life as I went through menopause, and that's compassion. It's often that we lack that in our lives. And so today I'm so delighted to have a guest that really specializes in this space. And she is Dr. Marion Trent. She's a clinical psychologist. She's also the author of The Grief Collective, which is stories of life, loss and healing. And I know from connecting with her earlier that she has a real interest and a fascinating approach to helping us bring more compassion into our lives. Welcome to the show, Marion. Hi, thanks, Clarissa. Thanks for inviting me. I'm absolutely, you know, always fascinated about compassion and how much it can bring to us when we practice it. But for my listeners who might be maybe a little less aware or maybe even a little confused about what compassion is, that might be a great place for us to start. Marion, tell us a bit more about what compassion, self-compassion is. Okay, so yeah, so I think people have a misconception with, even with the term compassion, thinking that it's perhaps a little bit, you know, a little bit too gentle, a bit too soft, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's letting yourself off the hook, or it's not, it's not for me, you know, it's not for, it's not for real people who want to get on in business, or, you know, who want to, to, I don't know, to do anything. But, you know, I think when we let self-compassion into our life and we see the benefit of it, it really can change our whole world. You know, it can it can stop us from being ruminating on guilt or shame or, you know, so at its at its core, what self-compassion is or what compassion is, thinking about actually whether a lot of the things that we struggle with are actually our fault or whether, you know, whether they occur because we are humans, because, you know, because we are mammals. And so for me, it's really thinking about, so in my clinical work, I work with people who experience, you know, trauma, and that might be single event trauma, it might be complex trauma, which has been happening to them throughout their lives, or working with people who've experienced grief. And for me, I think, 
people often say, well, it's my fault. I was, you know, I was not good enough or I wasn't deserving of love. And actually it's like, well, hold on a minute. You know, all humans are born deserving of love with a capacity to accept love. But also, you know, if we're not experiencing that from a young age, or if we stumble across people in our lives who don't want good things for us, then it can lead us to think and feel things about ourselves that we then continue to kind of tell ourselves as well. So we, we're carrying around almost our greatest critic. And actually what we need to do is to start to carry around our own greatest compassionate other. So it's, it's not terrifically easy to explain, but I think once you start to open yourself up to compassion, it really can change everything. That's so beautiful. And I think a lot of people, or I've seen it, you know, appear in social media, it's about being sympathetic, but it really is so much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's not just sympathy. It's not just empathy. It's not just kindness. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole different mind state. And I think especially for, for your audience of, of women who are perimenopausal or menopausal, you know, this is not their fault. You know, this is not something that they have had any control over. This is not something that they necessarily would have designed. You know, would they would they want to be experiencing these symptoms? Well, no, they wouldn't. But are they making the best of it? Are they trying to learn more about it so that they can to live an optimal life? Then yes, absolutely. You know, would they? Well, I think this is an interesting question. Would they prefer to be not necessarily younger? Because I'm about to turn 40 in less than two weeks, I'm going to be 40. And I was reflecting on this the other day, you know, it's been a really pivotal, really important 10 years of my life. So people say, oh, you know, you don't look 40, you know, you pass for 30 and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But actually, I'm I'm really proud and pleased to be 40. And I can imagine that when I turn 50, I would really hope that I've had another hugely important 10 years, but a hugely important 10 years of perhaps focusing on myself a little bit more. So my 30 to 40 took me from being a miss to a doctor from a doctor to a missus, and I, I sort of, I do, I do use both of them, doctor and missus, and it took me from being, you know, just me and my husband to having one child, having another child, and also losing my father. It's been a really significant and important 10 years of my life, and I'm really pleased to have had them, and also taken me from working for the NHS to working in a different job in the NHS to working solely for myself. It's been really important, but it's not been without compassion that I've been able to get through those 10 years. You know, there's a fairly big milestones there. And it's been really pivotal in helping me move through all those life stages. And that's such beautiful, Marin, how you describe that. And I mean, I think without compassion, we often struggle. And from my own experience, going through those perimenopausal years and suffering with anxiety, I didn't realize how maybe unkind I had been, how harsh I was on myself, the things I used to say to myself, how inadequate I thought I was. And every job review I came up, I thought, definitely, this is the year they're going to get rid of me. And of course, none of that was really true. But my inner conversation was quite frightening. And until I met working with compassion practices, which we are going to explore a bit more, I'm sure here, things didn't really shift. I stayed almost like stuck in those inner conversations, which weren't actually a reflection of my outer world at all. 
it can be so toxic, can't it? And, you know, sometimes we, you know, when I'm talking to people and we're doing, you know, a self-critic versus a self-compassionate exercise, I'm like, when I hear from people's self-critic, so for example, you'd be getting a flavour of what what their self-critic might look like if it came to life and you'd be getting a flavour of the kinds of things that you might say to yourself. So I'll give you some examples of things that people say to me, you know, well, you're not good enough, you're ugly, you're disgusting, you're fat, you're, you're awful, you know, nobody likes you, you know, the world would be better off without you. Who are you to think that you could do this? Who are you to think that you could write a book? Or who are you to think that you are special or you are important because you are nothing. And what you're getting there is you're getting a tone as well. So, you know, our self-compassion, our self-critic doesn't talk to us with a lovely, you know, lilting tone to it. You know, there's really real vitriol there, you know. And you'll say, I say to people, God, if I was employing a self-critic, I would definitely choose you because you are amazing at it. Wow. Like, and then you think, well, is it any wonder that you are feeling pretty, pretty low on yourself and, and finding it hard to give yourself permission to do anything or try anything new when you've got that self-critic that you're carrying around with you? So once that, you know, and if this was a friend, if this was someone else in your life, if this was a boss, would you be coming back for more? And they're like, God, no, <laughs> I would be running for the hills. And you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's see what airspace we can get between you and the self-critic. But there's, there's often beliefs that you couldn't cope without the self-critic. So the first part of the exercise we do is what would be your fear? of letting your self-critic go. And it's often like, well, I'd be lazy, I'd get nothing done, my house would be a state, my children would be a mess, you know, my business would fail, you know, I wouldn't, I would be really fat, or, you know, I would, wouldn't take care of myself. I'd be left being unchecked somehow, or, or people would be saying all these things about me, and I wouldn't have had like a I wouldn't have had a head start on it. So people often say, well, I'm going to tell myself all the stuff I might hear so that I'm ready, prepared for it. But actually, once they make the move to move away from self-criticism, I keep talking self-compassion, to self-compassion, they see that actually it's much more beneficial to have someone on your side who goes, oh my gosh, of course you feel like that. Because when X, Y, Z happened, it made you feel scared or it made you feel concerned or worried or it made you, you know, worry that people wouldn't like you. And of course, you might feel like you want to stay in and not share yourself with the world if you do feel that. Do you see what I mean? So you, you're, you're really, you know, you're understanding every reaction that you're having with compassion, without judgment, without shame, without criticism. And rather than saying, you know, don't do this, people will laugh, you're saying, gosh, but what if this is incredible? What if this really brings you everything you hope for? Or actually, even if it does go wrong, this is just part of life. You know, we can just pick ourselves up and we can try again. It doesn't say anything about you other than that you're human. No, exactly. And I think that's what's so special about self-compassion work, isn't it? That it gives you that space to think, well, actually, I'm okay. And if things didn't go right, well, the world wouldn't end. I'd just learn and move on. Yeah, absolutely. But I know that you work with very unique approach to self-compassion. Explain a little bit more about that, because I think that's what it really intrigued me, how that developed and how it, how it in broad terms, it works. Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, one of the biggest changes that I've made, certainly in the last 10 years, 
I would say probably about 10 years ago, I was a, what was I doing? I was 30. I was working in a child and adolescent mental health service. And I was probably feeling like I hadn't yet developed my own clinical specialty. So I was probably, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of psychodynamic training during my doctorate course. And I kind of thought that I might end up being a psychodynamic therapist. And I could not be further away from that now, actually, you know, probably about 15 years on. And I think for me, the most important shift that I have made is to be a human first and a psychologist second. And to know that actually, you know, when we look, I don't know how much you know about counselling theory, when we look at a chap called Rogers, who talks about the, you know, the therapeutic relationship being key being the most important thing that's absolutely right you know if I'm a complete awful person to be around in a first session people aren't going to come back you know and so it's <laughs> and people tell me that people say oh, I almost didn't come in because I was just you know really worried about what you were going to be like and how it's going to be like but this could not have been more different you know this has been it should feel like a like a helpful conversation rather than something that's being done to you and I think that's what is unique about the work that I do with people people often say to me well I'm I'm okay being myself now because I can see how okay Marianne is with being herself too so if she's all right with that then I I can learn to be okay with that too which is so beautiful. But I think a lot of that breaks that sort of barrier, as you said, between therapist and client, which often they see you as some sort of authority or distant who's going to tell them what to do. And it reminds me of, of meeting Dennis Turch, who you may know is a big compassionate per, um, developer of compassion methodology and more. And he said, sometimes my clients cry and I want to cry too, because their life is just so hard. And that was quite, he said that in a room full of psychologists and therapists and psychiatrists and a lot of people kind of stiffened. He said, but we're not afraid to be human with, and show emotion with our clients without breaking the, the client-patient relationship either. I, you know, I'm happy to say that I have and do cry with clients sometimes, you know, especially when things go really well for them. So when they tell me, oh my God, this happened and actually I didn't feel X, Y, Z and I noticed how much I changed. And that just you know, that moves me to tears because that's just like you can see that they're starting to internalize some of the things that we do. And I really love it when people say to me, oh, Marianne, I was sitting in an office with so-and-so or I was with my child or I was with my mum. I could see that they weren't regulating themselves. I could see that they weren't doing X, Y, and Z. And so what I did was I took a moment with them to help them with their breathing, to help think about being more compassionate. And they start to therapy other people because once you start to realize, it's very, it's very it's kind of a simple approach that I teach. So we look at just where we are in our window of tolerance. We look at where we are with our regulation of our feelings and our thoughts. And we just take simple steps to tweak them and just to, just to recognize them, to get ourselves back to a more comfortable area where we can function better, where we can use different strategies and draw them in. And once people are following that roadmap, they, you know, people say to me often, they might say to you as well, do you find that you're analysing everybody that you see? And I'm like, well, no, I don't. But you can see people who need a little help with regulation. 
you know? And once you start to speak that language yourself, they start to see that in others. And so they just start to not only regulate themselves, but regulate those around them too. So it's a real beauty of the work that we do. And so I absolutely cry with clients, but I am moved to tears with them and for them as well. I can definitely relate to that. You know, having worked as a mindfulness practitioner, a lot of the people I work with had very severe pain related issues. And sometimes they would say that they'd taken on a small practice and done it every day. It was sometimes the simplest of practices. And I'd be like so blown away that every day they'd committed to doing a small thing and that it was making this noticeable difference in their lives. I mean, you just, and you, sometimes their lives were just so hard and you could see how something small had made a shift. And that that also brings me to tears. It's the greatest privilege, honestly. I feel like my, my life and my job is just such a blessing to stand alongside people in some of the darkest moments of their lives or certainly reflecting and recounting and processing some of the darkest moments of their life. And to just be in that privileged position where you are trusted and where people are able to share that with you and to, to start the process of de-shaming their experience. It's just, honestly, it's wonderful, wonderful. That's one. And I think you've mentioned a word there, shame. And that, I think, is a very pertinent message for so many women going through perimenopause to menopause. We often feel ashamed of the way we're changing, ashamed of some of our symptoms, which can be very visible to others as as they are to us, and almost ashamed of getting older. And that's, you know, I love your view. I mean, compassion can play a huge role there, can't it? Yeah, I think we don't talk about bleeding. So why would we necessarily talk about not bleeding, you know? And I think we're starting a movement of of talking more about periods. And, you know, I will level with you. I just finished my period, Clarissa. So I had my period last week, so I've just finished it. So I'm telling the world, you know, women women bleed. It's what happens, you know? It's very normal. And, yeah, obviously I work with I work with people who aren't bleeding for because of eating disorders as well. And actually, yeah, let's talk about that. So with an eating disorder, if someone is restricting, what a period is, you probably know this already, but what a period is, is the body saying, I've got 500 spare calories. So when someone stops bleeding because they um, are low body weight, what the body is saying is, I haven't got these 500 calories to spare. So that's why the periods stop. But of course, menopause is not the same reason. You know, I'm not a menopause specialist, although that's your area of specialty. But, you know, it's, it's not, it's not because of that. You know, it's because we are not supposed to be procreating, you know, late into our, later in life. You know, there's exceptions to that, of course, but of, then there's, you know, shame and guilt and other people's opinions around that as well. So, but you know, we can, Absolutely. Let's start the movement to talk about periods and we'll continue with that movement. And to know that actually, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm pleased that I'm approaching menopause now rather than before, because I feel like there's so much more around the menopause now. I just thought it was going to be something that would just happen and be done. And that, you know, that would, I didn't really realize there'd be psychological changes. I knew about the hot flushes because I think that's the one that gets some more press, isn't it? 
but I just hadn't really appreciated what a life stage it would be and what a what a significant thing it would be. You know, I guess I liken it to, so I um, breastfed my children for a few years each, actually. And then once, you know, once I stopped feeding, it felt like a really important relationship with my body that was done because I knew I wasn't going to have any more children and I wasn't going to be breastfeeding ever again. And that's, you know, that's a grief and a loss and a, you know, a bit of a trauma all, all by itself, isn't it? And I think menopause is is very much another stage along in that. And I guess thinking about what the future will hold for me and my body. So I am, as I said, I'm on the verge of turning 40 and I've been really trying to, I try to eat well, I try to sleep well, but since becoming self-employed, I've really tried to exercise a lot more as well. And I guess I'm excited to see where that might go in my next 10 years and beyond as well. I think that's, and I think you've spoken about something really important, which is about menstruation. It is about, it's almost like for me, and I'll say this, maybe I've said it before to my listeners too, is that if we can't talk about menstruation, it seems to make it even harder to talk about menopause because they're all part of the same sort of continued story. And we have tremendous difficulty in so many cultures. In some cultures, we're still, you know, in reality, locking women in in, in small dark corners during those times of life, which is, you know, that's happening in rural parts of Africa and India because we don't understand but we have difficulty speaking about that, even amongst our own friends, let alone in our workplaces. And it's not really so surprising that menopause then becomes a continuation of that story. Yet you're so right, it is a phase of life that we're all going to go through as women or people even who identify as, or men who identify as female but, and still have a, have a womb or women who identify as men, should I say, have a womb. So anybody that has the ability to, to have a period is going to also have menopause. Is it celebrated in any, in any cultures? Does anyone celebrate menopause, do you know of? No, not, not officially. There are some indications that maybe in indigenous cultures there's been more acknowledgement of elders and the value that they bring. But I don't think we've ever truly celebrated it in times that we remember. You know, women often moved in. Well, I want to. I want a, a menopause cake and menopause party. Let's do it. <laughs> well, if we can have baby showers, why not? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> that would be help women. That would help women bring more compassion to that space if we thought we could we could be kinder to ourselves and see this for the journey that it is rather than just a set of symptoms that are incredibly hard to bear. And I guess some people do have perhaps easier times of it, don't they? But I, I've recently, uh, I think my mum sort of just kind of did it and got through it without too much stress that I remember. I did ask her, in preparation, for this, I did ask her what her experiences were like. She said, oh, I don't really remember. Recently, I'd been um, in conversation with someone else on a different group who'd been saying that actually it can be really common that people start to have kind of suicidal thoughts during menopause and perimenopause. And that's just something that I hadn't been 
aware of. And so, yeah, do we look more closely at suicides of perimenopausal women to think about whether that could have been a factor? Because, you know, if even the psychologist wasn't aware of it until like two weeks ago, then it's very likely that others are not aware of this as well and that they might just think that it's a change in their mental health. But, you know, some small tweaks with medication or lifestyle or diet could actually impact on that. And I guess I'm intrigued on your opinion on that as well, Clarissa. Well, what we do know, of course, is that suicide rates go up at this time of life. And there's some great work done by a professor called Carney at the University of Sydney. She's a psychiatrist who has a particular interest in the relationship between moods and estrogen. And she sees that relationship as being one of the areas that can contribute to women's suicide at this time of life. And I'm actually going to have her as a guest on the show to talk particularly about this area. Because I do think that it's something we're not addressing. We kind of half know it, but not really. And it's not in the common conversation. And yet you as a psychologist must know that women's suicide rates are up quite considerably. And we don't. And of course, if you've had a more difficult mental health history, you've had severe depression and anxiety or you're bipolar or schizophrenic, then there's a much greater chance that a hormonal imbalance could tip you into suicidal thoughts. Of course, of course. And it's so much about support as well, isn't it? And validation and how much compassion you have around you. So I could imagine that if if you you know, perhaps some of your relationships have been conditional, you know, and then there's changes with the way that you're feeling or the way that you, you know, might want to not have sex or have sex, that there might be, you know, it might lead to further complications within those relationships that might already have been conditional, which means that you get, get even less acceptance, even less compassion or warmth or more criticism, maybe, which might feel really difficult when you're already feeling lower. And I think a lot of women are also coping with a tremendous amount of other stuff at that time of life. So things become compounded. This is a time when you may be facing relationship difficulties, as we just talked about. You may be becoming an empty nester. That can cause a lot of grief, yeah? And then you may also be losing your parents or your status at work. I mean, it's it's sad to say, but a lot of women do find themselves in difficulties in, in their workplaces because of menopause and the symptoms that show up. So a lot of maybe what was your rocks in life disappear or things that have been not right get dialed up. And that, of course, can lead to very strong emotions that can lead to feelings of isolation and and grief and maybe even the thought that you would kill yourself because life is so difficult. Just so many people feeling overwhelmed and out of control in so many different areas. And maybe the, you know, before that they had, at least my body is doing, you know, is, is behaving itself. And then that all sort of feels a bit out of whack. And yeah, I, I guess you, you can absolutely see how, how the thoughts would spiral. So, it, you know, this early help, this early advice around the menopause and the symptoms of it and the side effects and just, you know, I guess that roadmap of knowing what does happen to some people and what is the norm for most people is really useful just so that people don't feel so alone and confused and bewildered by all of this. Yes, and I think that getting help from someone like yourself is so important, like having a therapist and seeing that not as a failure, but as something that can be an absolute support through 
this time of life. And I think although CBT has talked about it, there's not a huge conversation around compassion and compassion-focused therapy approaches. There's a little bit of conversation about ACT, acceptance, commitment therapy. But really, I feel that compassion-focused approaches can make such a difference at a time when so much, as you say, is out of control. I really agree. You know, I think America has very much more a therapy movement, don't they? Than So I speak to you from Coventry in the UK, but I think there is still more stigma about accessing mental health or kind of counselling work. And I think this is perhaps why the coaching movement is really coming into fore as well, because there's less stigma around that. But to be bearing in mind, of course, that, that not all coaches have the depth of experience or the depth of knowledge and that coaching qualifications can be come across very easily with very little time. So there is a great difference. So I would say coaching, if you are you know, mental, in, if your mental health seems intact, but you're looking to kind of strive and move forward to, to reach optimal levels of functioning, then coaching might be more appropriate. But if people are considering what kind of level of support to go towards, then I really think you can't go far wrong with having someone that's got a breadth of experience and mental health training, as well as kind of the more compassionate angles as well. I think that's very, very true. And I think, I think that. We're still carrying, or people are carrying as therapists, the fact that there's something wrong with me. And there's not necessarily you come to a therapist because there's something wrong with you, but you want to work through and make things better for yourself. And living here in Sweden, I mean, therapy's huge here. <laughs> it always has been. It always has been perfectly normal for people to talk about their problems and that you can access therapy services through an app. So it's a part of your doctor's wider medical services and your therapist. It's very easy to talk to a therapist. They're very big on CBT here, which is sort of my, oh, is that the only way kind of thing. But I have a psychologist friends who are working very actively every day. It's very, very normal to have that. And that's, I think, very good for people because we're addressing as a society mental health issues and we're not making those a stigma. Yeah. You know, I think every therapy has its place, absolutely. So I'm trained in CBT, I'm trained in CFT, so compassion focused therapy, trained in EMDR, which is a specialist trauma approach called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I also do other kind of bits of kind of systemic and solution focused and, and other bits, but to make it really bespoke for somebody so that it really works for them, you know, because everybody is not a one size fits all approach. But with CBT, people will often come to me when they've had CBT and they're like, yeah, it was all right when I was doing it, but then we stopped doing it and it didn't work. And I think what we realize is that CBT kind of helps you get through a patch, but doesn't address the root causes of what might have led to to the situation arising. Whereas what we look at with CFT and with kind of the approaches that I use is really to, so with trauma, often we might find ourselves reacting to something as if the thing is happening now, which then informs the types of decisions that you make and that, you know, what you might do because we're not kind of, we haven't processed the trauma. So what we do with people is we use that compassionate approach, but we also blend in the trauma work as and when necessary so that you're really getting to the under, underlying cause of why they feel the way they do. And quite often people will realize actually 
part of the reason I feel the way I do is I just I'm not being seen for who I am you know I'm being treated as being someone that should be doing x y and z but actually that's not me and you know I don't I shouldn't have to conform I should be good enough just as I am and I can believe and I can learn to believe that I am good enough as who I am and so if people don't like what they see that says everything about them and nothing about me I love that actually (laughs) that that whole sort of that bit about it's nothing to do with them it's about me and I think that that's a huge message. I think lots of women, whether we're menopausal or not, need to hear that. For sure. Hear that and and find a way to work through that because I think we carry an awful lot of outward criticism and think that that's with the should, you know, this should culture. And I don't think that gets better as we get older because sometimes our body and where we are isn't allowing us to do whatever those shoulds are when we create a huge kind of gap which creates issues for us yeah i think what you just said you know if people are kind of actually telling us the shoulds to our face you know through our work they start to think well actually you know do i want to be around someone who can openly say such mean things to me well no (laughs) I don't, that's not, that's not a kind thing to say, you know, and once people stop saying those things to themselves, they're less likely to accept it being said by others as well, which can really free them up to make different choices and to be more bounded about themselves and to start doing things like saying no, you know, no is a complete sentence. You know, if you don't want to do something, you can just say no, but you know, it's not thought of as being polite or nice or very gentle or very, you know, maternal or womanly to to say no but actually it can be really empowering when you realize it doesn't say anything about me other than that I don't want to do that thing and that's okay you know actually I'd much prefer to do this thing and I think um, I don't know what the situation is like in Sweden currently with the pandemic but we've been having lots of interesting conversations about boundaries and saying no in the UK so people are all at different stages of what they're feeling able to do and what they feel comfortable to do with the state of the coronavirus situation so whilst it might be legal so we're speaking in June and come the 21st of June in the UK essentially society is unfolding and everything is open with no restrictions and no mask wearing, I believe, as well. And it's like, well, yeah, whilst that might be legal, you know, and whilst the restaurants are open again, it doesn't mean that I necessarily want to go to a restaurant. So I might be comfortable to sit in a pub garden. And whilst I am allowed legally to go in your house, I don't want to do that. So I'm allowed to say, no, I'm allowed to say, well, actually, I'm not really feeling quite right about that at the moment. But why don't we just go for a walk or a picnic in the park? You know, you you can just say no, or you can say, no, I'm not really up for that right now. And that's okay. You can empower yourself to tune in to yourself and give yourself permission to do what fits well for you. And I think that applies everything in life. But with the coronavirus here in Sweden, of course, we've always acted with a from a perspective of social responsibility. That's because we're a very consensus and collectively driven society, which is a little different from the UK. But uh, people here were allowed to make their own decisions, which was quite empowering. There have been some restrictions as to how many people can go in a shop at one time and, and making sure we don't stand right on top of each other. But there's never been any lockdown or any mandating of doing this, that or the other. So everybody has chosen the boundaries that work for them. And I, I mean, I chose for 
reasons to do with my own health and also because my husband has autoimmune issues and mental health issues, that it might be better that we were a little bit more locked in and restricted because I think it could have been very damaging for for him and therefore for me if things had gone wrong. But now we're gradually opening up as people get vaccinated. But I, it was a very different approach and the world thought we were heading towards herd immunity and, also, and that wasn't even true. It was about collective social responsibility and on the whole it pretty well worked we don't have we have high rates of infection but we don't have more deaths than anywhere else and now we seem to have eased through it and they were be more restrictive with people who were 17 and they said well that's probably not very good on their mental health to have restrictions around these people that why should they be cut off you know so it was you know quite different but equally so boundaries for women when we learn to say no, oh my goodness, <laughs> there's a whole freeing up of that. Definitely. And it doesn't make you a meanie, you know, it just, just makes you capable of knowing your own mind and knowing that you don't need to come second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth every time. You know, sometimes you can put yourself first. And it's the idea of, you know, thinking about when you're on an aeroplane, if you need oxygen, you need to put your own mask on first. It's not just being, you know, it's not being selfish to do that. You've got to look after yourself first because then you are able to help others. Whereas if you don't do that, you can't, you know, everyone else is more likely to perish if you haven't looked after yourself. And I think we, especially as therapists, we really need to think about taking that on board. So I am... So when I moved to just self-employed, I actually have not maxed myself out to compassion to, to capacity I've been really compassionate with that so Mondays and Fridays I tend to keep for doing kind of business development and doing things like podcasts and interviews and things like that and doing book writing and you know nice nice bits things that I think of was really nice and then I see clients on a Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday morning but I'm not maxing myself out and actually I'm gonna be looking at upping my self-care so perhaps going for a massage once a month or a facial once a month to really just help myself be resilient and being able to then help others because I've already helped myself. And that is self-compassion in action, isn't it, Marion? Yeah, it really is. It really is. So people talk about self-care, but self-care isn't just a face pack. It isn't just doing your nails. Self-care is so much more than that. Self-care is giving yourself breathing space. It's giving yourself permission to say no. It's massive. You know, self-care it's not just a face pack. It, you know, that's what people think of it as, but it's more than that. Yeah. It's giving yourself permission to take the time you need for the things you need to do that are important with your life. And sometimes they're about boundaries. Sometimes they're about addressing things that you've maybe left behind that you don't want to do that are tough and you need some support to do that has many different dimensions. If you could sum up Somebody who is wanting to practice more compassion in their life, to be kinder to themselves, what or where would they start, Marion? Okay. So I think firstly, tuning in to the self-critic can be a really useful approach. So just jotting down some of the thoughts that you say to yourself just over the course of a normal day. And you might want to do that for a week. And then read themselves back, read, read them, read it back to yourself, you know, after that week of monitoring. And just just ask yourself the question, if if this was a friend or someone else in my life, would I want to listen to everything they've got to say? Would I would I let them follow me around day after day? And if the answer is no, then it might be an indication that we could do with upping 
the self-compassion in our lives. So there's no judgment here. We all do it. We all do it. And it's a daily practice, really. So it's like a muscle, a self-compassionate muscle. If we don't use it, it withers, you know. And sometimes even now, my first kind of response will be, will be critical. But what I'm able to do is I'm able to just reframe and kind of bring in my breathing and really think about, well, of course, like, it's understandable that that you're feeling that way, Marianne, of course it is. But and, you know, just compassionately reframe what might have been my original, perhaps more critical approach. So it can be really powerful, but it's not without pain. And, you know, we've got to engage with that to work through any distress to come out the other side, really. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I think that's a very powerful, isn't it? Because when we've committed it to paper, it's kind of there in black and white for us to read. And yes, you're right, it, it can be incredibly helpful. But I think being prepared that it isn't that looking at how you actually speak can be a little bit ouch at times. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I put together the Grief Collective book um, after my experiences of losing my father. And I think I would have had a very different experience of losing him and also after he died if I'd had compassion around in my life before that. I think I very much told myself I should be carry on going and, and doing all of this. But actually, I was incredibly stressed. You know, I had I was pregnant whilst my dad was diagnosed. And I already had a young child and I was working full time. You know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I, I think it's only with hindsight when, you know, when I was putting together the stuff for the book and getting other people's stories for the book is that I realised, God, you were managing a lot, Marianne. You really were. And, you know, I think we can just, you know, even if we can compassionately reframe things that have already happened to us, I think that's really helpful in helping move through those feelings of shame and guilt and remorse and regret. Yeah, and probably that we were being the best that we could be in that moment in time. Absolutely, using the best resources we had available at that time. Absolutely. And that even if it was messy and painful, that we were just... We were as good as we could possibly be and there was nothing for us to to be ashamed about or guilty about. It's just how it was. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Marion, I love talking to you and we could talk all day about compassion and self-care and kindness and inner critics. How can people connect with you and learn more about the work you do? Oh, lovely. Thank you. So I do um, tend to do daily mental health videos on LinkedIn. So I am Marianne Trent on LinkedIn. And I think Dr. Marianne Trent, actually, but I think if you search Marianne Trent, I'll come up. Um, My website is www.goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk. The same daily videos appear on Instagram, which is Good Thinking Psychological. I'm also on Twitter, which is Good Thinking PS1, I believe. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm on YouTube as well. Good Thinking Psychological Services. Yeah, if you are on social media, you can absolutely connect with me. And if you're not, then you totally should. But yeah, I'm putting together another book as well, which is called The Clinical Psychologist Collective. So if anybody is a clinical psychologist and would be interested in telling their story to others to help support the next generation of clinical psychologists, then absolutely get involved. Information on my website. Or if one day you'd like to be a clinical psychologist and you're like, oh my God, I want to get my hands on that book, then you can absolutely register for more information there too. 
That is wonderful. Marian, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your and your wisdom and your passion for this space. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions. Why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me and I would love to hear from you so drop me an email clarissa at clarissachristensen.com I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast and if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support pop over to my website clarissachristensen.com you can find free resources And you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. The U.S. Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov career USBP. The is it morning yet deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Get any sized iced coffee for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. And sweeten the deal when you pair it with a baked apple or pumpkin and creme pie. After all, why wait to treat yourself? Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.